Welcome everyone to, well, this is the cocktail hour. Um, ironically enough, I'm your host, Sam Snelling. I have no cocktail. Uh, Matt, are you drinking anything? Uh, I am also not drinking a cocktail, but I am drinking a delicious um, and also a philanthropic uh, beverage. Um, in Indianapolis, we have a bunch of breweries. Um, I think we have one of the largest number per capita in the region so it's great because you can go get any number of cool beers anywhere but there's a spot in our old neighborhood uh, called metazoa brewing which was i think the form the the guy who runs it was the former head brewer at sun king here which is really well known in indianapolis and uh regionally uh for like some like cream ale and a bunch of stuff like that but he started up kind of this side project called metazoa and it's a bar and their tasting room is pet friendly like you can bring your dogs in, they can roam around. They've built an entire like dog park, and you can let your, and you can let them run free. Uh, you can be part of the mug club there, um, and so all like I think ten to fifteen percent of their revenue goes to support um, local animal shelters. Um, so they make nice. they make really really good beer. Um, and I'm drinking one of my favorites in them called Nap in the Hammock. It's a cream ale, um, and it's really really nice. It's like only four point seven percent. And it's only like 15 IBUs, so it's not. It's got a good kind of rich, you know, flavor profile to it. Um, but it's still easy to drink, and it doesn't really fill you up. So it's it's fantastic. Um, uh, Ellery uh, brought home uh, a four pack of it, and it is delightful. And I'm doing, and we're doing well by uh, all the animals in uh, the Indianapolis area. Excellent. Yeah. The uh, the beer scene here in St. Louis is also really good, and I've been I've been. I don't want to say badgered, but uh, th- there have been requests uh, from an unnamed editor at the the site, um, and uh, I'm going to give it away by, by providing a gender, but she uh, wants us to talk more about beer and less about bourbon, <laughs> uh, which... Which I am, I'm, you know, you know me as well. Like I'm a passionate beer guy as well. Like, you know, say the scene here in St. Louis is fantastic. Uh, whenever Allie and I travel, like we typically like we'll hit up several breweries. We were just in Nashville last summer and, and went to like, you know, bearded Iris there. And that was great. And, um, trying to think of, uh, we went to like three or four different ones. Bearded Iris was probably my favorite. They, they, they do like, I'm a, I like my my hazy New England style IPAs, and they they had a a couple there that were really good. Yeah, Narrow Gauge in St. Louis, which you introduced me to, does really really good uh, New England IPAs. Yes, they do fantastic. Ones. Yes, so. I think Narrow Gauge is is maybe producing like the best New England style IPAs in the country, and if they are not doing the best, they're amongst they're, the they're best. They're fantastic. They are absolutely tasty and del- so delectable. <laughs> Uh, well, so yeah, this is uh, the final episode of Dive Cuts of the season, the third season. We're in season three, episode 30, uh, last episode. So uh, that is the last time that you will hear um, our regular, I, I guess, the, the music that you've known for like the last year. Uh, and I'm completely forgetting who it is. I am as well. Uh, I usually just leave the music selections up to you. So that's uh, yeah. So we did get a lot of um, really good selection or uh, re- uh, not requests, uh, suggestions. Um, a lot of really good suggestions after uh, sort of made the announcement that we're looking for a new song. Um, 
I think I, I created kind of like a playlist that includes all those songs. So if you're like into kind of interesting uh, hip hop stuff, um, I will tweet out the link to the playlist. Uh, it is a Spotify playlist. So if you're not on Spotify, sorry. <laughs> uh, but that's, hey, that's what I use. And um, yeah, so it's a really cool playlist. It's, it's not super long right now. I'm thinking about kind of adding it more. So it'll be kind of like a playlist for dive cuts, intro music, or music that would be inspired by, I guess, kind of like one of those things. Does that make sense? Um, but yeah, so I'll, I'll tweet that out um, probably tonight, uh, which before any of you actually listen to this. So if you're listening to this and you haven't seen that tweet, uh, go back and look at my tweets, and it should be there. If it's not, uh, then badger me about it. Um but yeah, so next episode we'll have new intro music. I'm excited about it. Uh, it is going to be one of the songs on that playlist. Uh, but yeah, so here we are. I am I am not drinking, Matt. And the reason is because I'm convinced that my wife is slowly trying to poison us. Um, she's been baking a lot of bread, and we think the last batch may have had a problem because both of us have not been feeling well, and we figured it out tonight that the only thing that we've eaten consistently the last three days has been the uh, the loaf of bread that she made you know i hope maybe she's taken out a life insurance policy unbeknownst to you <laughs> and she's just decided that it's her and the dogs and that's all she needs in life and you, you've given her all the fulfillment possible and she's and she's moving to start anew i would i would understand um I, I do think that that's pretty unlikely, uh, considering she's also been eating the bread. Uh, <laughs> so I mean, that's... Uh, but yeah. I met your wife. I'm, Allie's very, very sharp. She would, like, not just, like... <laughs> she would eat the bread, too, to convince you that the bread was, you know, consumable. But just, you know, not enough of it to be fatal. So let's, let's, not, let's not short-sell your wife here in her intellect. I believe she's got good plans. So... Uh, it's been nice knowing you, I guess. Well, I would like I would be a little concerned about being able to uh, uh, to to pay all the bills if there was only one of us. So we we both need each other at this point to stay alive in order to uh, continue to exist. Um, but let's talk about about basketball because that's why we're here, and it's been not the best couple of weeks for Mizzou basketball. Uh, we did get a bit of good news the other night. Uh, Xavier Pinson, um, sort of tweeted out his, uh, little video saying that he has unfinished business at Mizzou and he's, uh, I guess officially planning on returning. He has not officially withdrawn his name from the NBA draft, but I don't think that his announcement returning is going to surprise anyone. Oh no, that's been the reported expectation that all three of the guys who have their names, uh, in the draft... Uh, right now, uh, Pinson, Jeremiah Tillman, and Mitchell Smith are going to withdraw. Uh, Tillman said a couple weeks ago at a local basketball camp run by Lawrence Bowers that uh, he intends to be back. So I guess we're just waiting for some really slick graphics to get dropped on August 3, uh, announcing those guys are back. But um, as I've gone through and done, um, you know, tried to get a handle on the best returners in the SEC, I've consistently had those guys in the mix is and markdown is, you know, pretty bankable on being back in the fold. Um, I, I think with Pinson back, 
I, I still consider Drew Smith to be the, the prime driver of that backcourt. And when you look across any metrics, whether they're traditional stats, through usage, through um, efficiency stuff, through synergy, I, I think Drew Smith's going to be the top one of the top ten returners in the SEC. But behind him is, is going to be Xavier Pinson. And I think if you have those two guys kind of, you know, sharing the duties of, of running the offense and, you know, operating an offense that we think is going to look close to what it did in the closing stretch of last season, then I think that that really um, gives you some confidence about what this team will look like, assuming that we ever have basketball, you know, this in the months ahead. But, um, you know, I don't think anyone was fretting too much about uh, Xavier keeping his name in the mix, but now that it's out, you can, you know, at least feel good about what, Missouri is going to have for its veteran core coming back and that it's going to have two um, key ball handlers in a league that's going to have a lot of veteran uh, guards. There's going to be a lot of veteran backcourts in the league this year. So uh, Missouri can at least bank on having that. And I think it's, it's sort of uh, important primarily for like any real level of optimism kind of coming into the year is, is you sort of look at, you know, the, the final, you know, stretch of like, you know, eight or 10 games when, Missouri was kind of putting things together, and a lot of that revolved around, uh, you know, Pinson and and Drew Smith, you know, sort of taking on a more of a co-share of the the main point guard duties, um, and hopefully the uh, the main thing that you get from Pinson is is a little bit more of consistency, a little bit more of what he provided down the stretch, rather than like you know the first year and a half of his college career, which was. Uh, you know, obviously showing big time flashes, looking like a, a real difference maker at times, and then completely disappearing at other times, and taking uh, bad shots and making bad decisions. Um, you know, all kind of lumped into that. So I think down the stretch he uh, became far more aggressive with the ball, uh, realizing that SEC officials are going to give the offensive player like the benefit of the doubt most of the time on on a, uh, a straight line drive to the basket and, and you attack the rim and you're going to get to the free throw line a lot and that's one of the ways that you can really improve your offensive efficiency and I think that's that's something that that Xavier hopefully figured out and and can apply uh, kind of coming into the year because I think if you have you know him and and, and Drew um, you know consistently driving the ball uh, hopefully you can find some uh uh, some some good health and luck with with Mark Smith, and then I think you have a backcourt that you're really pretty happy with. Yeah, I, I, that's and I think the as we talked about, you know, back in you know back in earlier in the spring, the addition of Drew Bugs, I think, is going to be helpful in the sense that now I think you can rest either one of those two got veterans now um, and get a, a true straight point guard on the floor. Both of the both Pinson and Drew Smith are really good kind of can operate off the ball in different ways. Um, I think Drew is better kind of moving as a cutter and you know, coming off some pin downs and stuff like that and kind of working himself free. Whereas I think you can have Pinson sort of, you know, hunt, you know, switches and things like that and sort of play downhill. But you know that someone who's going to come up, come down and set up the offense and, you know, get Missouri into good sets is going to be bugs. So I think that that's the one thing I'm interested in seeing is how that dynamic between those three play out and what sort of lineups um, the coaching staff is able to create that can sort of 
mix and match their skill sets. Um, but I think the one thing that Missouri won't lack is, is ball handling. And, you know, we can talk about other areas of the roster that are going to be short up, whether it's shooting, whether it's, you know, depth in the front court, but what they're not going to lack and what, you know, Missouri fans have sort of, you know, been frustrated with, or at least, you know, gnashed their teeth about the first couple of years of Conzo's tenure were was consistent ball handling and, you know, keeping turnovers under control. Well, now hopefully you've got three, you know, veteran guards who can all, you know, do a good job and operate, you know, the offense, you know, pretty competently and, you know, at least you know, keep, you know, this team from hemorrhaging possessions and get them into good actions and offense that, you know, maximizes what they do have on the roster. So if you're, if you're looking for an optimistic, an optimistic outlook, I think that that facet and that trait that this team has is one you can kind of latch your hopes to. Yeah, and uh, I, I think the turnover thing is kind of important because I think, um, you know, as a coach, you tend to sort of see guys uh, turn the ball over more when they're, when they're physically and mentally tired. Uh, and so keeping, um, like, particularly Drew Smith, who I, I don't think is as turnover prone as his numbers show, keeping him a little bit fresher, um, you know, and, and getting guys in and out and, and having better depth, I think will will hopefully kind of keep those turnover numbers down. And, you know, like we've kind of said, like a lot of times Mizzou's um, sort of, po- you know, points per shot hasn't been the problem, but their points per possession has, has sort of lagged because of their high turnover rates. So I, I think as as we sort of wrap it up here, I think that that's, there's, you know, we obviously want to see, you know, Xavier become more consistent night in, night out offensively. I think he can still, you know, get better defensively in terms of being engaged, especially off the ball at times. I think there, you know, there are still instances where, you know, his awareness sort of on the weak side of the floor as the ball swing can be a little bit, uh, can wane a little bit, but if he can, (laughs) if he can clean up, those two areas, and I think you feel good about three guys in that guard rotation. And then you're really starting to – and then you have three guys who I think can manufacture offense. Drew Bugs can you know, play out of ball screens, find guys, make good reads, make good decisions, set guys up, and get the ball to guys in advantageous spots. So that's – you know he's not scoring, but he's creating efficient shots. You know, you have – Drew Smith, who we know is kind of crafty as a finisher and can, you know, make good decisions that way. And then you've got a, you know, it's more of a straight line attacking kind of guard in Xavier Pinson. So now you've got, you know, some diversity of options there. And, you know, obviously they've got to improve jump shooting at the wing spot and, you know, out of a combo guard like Mark Smith. But at least you've got three guys who can sort of manufacture and generate offense for you. And I think that that, at times, as we talked about a year ago, was was a problem for this team. If they weren't getting something with off-ball movement or if they weren't generating something on their initial action, they looked just lost and they had to immediately kind of get into jailbreak mode where they were scrambling late in possessions to try and, you know, cobble something together. But, you know, at least having three guys now who can, you know, feel comfortable with the ball in their hands and create in different ways is is certainly an asset that, that you feel good about. So moving on a little bit, uh, I know that there was some recruiting movement on the more negative side of the news that basically any recruit that trimmed his list in the last few weeks uh, trimmed Missouri off their 
off the list, except for uh, Madison Peaster. Madison Peaster. I saw one commenter, at, you know, Rock Nation, kind of refer to him as like, you know, like a roll of the eyes and uh, called him like a two-star recruit. It's like, um, I mean, I don't know about you, but I thought his top ten. I mean, that's a if that's a legitimate top ten, like that's a pretty solid top ten. They were all high major schools. Yeah. A lot of them were, and he was like Miami and TCU and uh, Washington. The and, TCU offer is legit, um, but uh, this is. But as we say, the offers and interests is always the critical distinction if you're talking about a a graphic with how much, what are the legit offers and what is interest uh, in a kid. You know, it, I'm interested in Peaster because he comes out of a a program at Mills High School, which um, has been better in recent years. But you know, when you think of like Little Rock basketball, you typically think of like Parkview or Little Rock Hall. As guy, as mm-hmm. kind of having a monopoly on good guys in that city, which is possible because Little Rock has open transfer rules um, as part of its desegregation agreement. So you can go wherever you want, um, and usually those guys tend to coalesce at Parkview or Hall. But um, they've had some guys come out of Mills in recent years that are pretty solid. Um, you know, I, I I haven't found a full uh, kind of cut up tape on Peaster yet, so. I'm sort of interested to see the longer um, uh, runs of him and what he can offer as a skill set. But, you know, Missouri's going to need to replace, you know, ball handlers. Um, they've got Anton Brookshire already in the boat. And so if Peaster's at least considering Missouri, he plays point, and that is a position of need. So um, I sort of take a wait-and-see view on, on Peaster until I actually you know, get a chance to watch, you know, highlights of him and, for an extended period before I, you know, want to render a judgment. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't uh, discount him, you know, because he, I think he's not rated on one of the sites at all. Like he doesn't have a profile. Um, you know, like if, if those kinds of schools are sniffing around, like he's a, he's a legit guy. And if you, I, I think there's like a couple highlight tapes. It's pretty clear that he's athletic. Um, it's difficult to always ascertain how good of a player he is off highlight tapes, but I mean, he's a high major athletic kid. Uh, just whether the skills translate, I think would be the question. Cause at this point we just don't know. You haven't, you haven't seen him. Um, but it, it is, it is sort of frustrating. I think for, uh, you know, Mizzou fans to sort of see all these, uh, these previous players, Sort of trim the Tigers from a cut down or commit elsewhere. Uh, you know, I, I, I think the uh, the commitment today uh, was you know Malachi Branham, who was a Ohio kid, sort of low five star, high four star, depending on the service. Uh, he had a you know legit offer from Ohio State. They had been recruiting him pretty hard for a while. He commits to Ohio State. Um, and, you know, I don't necessarily think that Missouri was, like, deeply invested. I think I've kind of seen a few places that have said that, uh, you know, Missouri was recruiting him pretty hard. They might have been at one point. Um, but I have a hard time imagining that, you know, that Conzo is looking at a top 30 kid in Ohio and thinking, oh, like, we should go get that kid, you know. Like, I think konzo of all people understands sort of how he's going to have to to win recruiting battles 
and going head to head with an Ohio kid when Ohio State is deep in the mix, I mean, you're not going to win that. Um, so I, I, I'm skeptical that they were uh, deeply invested. I'm sure, you know, maybe Cornell Mann, who does Ohio and Michigan, I'm sure he was probably still checking in, probably late, but, you know, there's a difference between, like, what, what the board um, is in July of 2019 versus what it is in July of 2020. Yeah, and, you know, the same thing with Jaden Akins, who cut his list earlier in the week. Um, you know, I had heard late last week that Missouri was not going to make his top six, but even earlier than that, I had heard it, it this was going to be an in-state race between, you know, Michigan State and Michigan. And so, you know, at that point, you know, give again, a Cornell man's ties and connections are as good as, you know, they're supposed to be in that state. That's not news to him. You know, he's, he's probably one of the first people aware of that. And so the question really is, you know, how invested were they once it became clear that it was going to become a, a race between those two schools and, you know, when did they decide to, to back out and sort of go a different direction there? Um, same thing with sort of James Graham, who cut his list literally 10 minutes after Jay Nickens did. Uh, Missouri offered him in May a uh, combo forward out of Milwaukee, who just has taken off. His, he, cut. He, went, he went from like unranked, like nobody was even thinking about this kid, to being offered by virtually everybody and, and being a top 60 And player. having North Carolina and Kentucky calling him. Like it, it just... That was a situation where the, the escape velocity just got, just ramped up really quickly, and um, so Graham cut them from that list. But you know, I think at the same time you hear how invested they are in trying to pursue David Joplin. You know, another you know Milwaukee kid, you know from another nearby suburb. You know that. So is it disappointing not to make the cut for Graham? Sure. I mean, Graham's you know a really really good player. I really loved his tape and sort of his ceiling, but David Joplin's also really good and they're, you know, they seem invested there. So if they know that they were sort of out of the mix for Branham and for Aikens and they'd sort of pivoted to a guy that we talk about a lot, which is Tamar Bates, the combo guard spot. And they saw how fast Graham's recruitment was accelerating, which it seems like they did because they, I've heard more about Joplin and them trying to, you know, get into that race and stay in that race with Texas then you can see that they sort of pivoted. And I think that's the thing that sometimes with this staff, you know, even people who cover recruiting, you know, you don't see a lot about what Missouri's moves are, how their board mutates and shifts. And so it's easy. And I understand why fans get upset. And I'm not telling fans not to get upset because you want to see a program land good players. And I feel like, you know, fans coming at me on Twitter, they sort of think that I'm telling them not to be upset. Look, you can feel how you want to feel, but I think, the board and how it shifts is so fluid that, you know, if Missouri has been out on a kid for a couple of months, should you really be upset that they didn't make a spot on his graphic? I don't think so. Now I get the question that, you know, about the commitment of time and resources to why would we recruit a kid who may ultimately cut us? Well, in Jay Nakin's case, a year ago, when we were at top 100, you know, Michigan State, you know, was checking on him, but they weren't, like, totally all-in invested on recruiting him. The same with Pierre Brooks, both of those guys who look likely to wind up in East Lansing. You know, when I went up and, and scouted them last fall, they said they were hearing from Michigan State, but 
neither had been offered yet, and that was in September of last year. They'd both, you know, been hearing from Missouri a lot. They'd both taken unofficial visits here. Like, it was a smart decision to recruit them because Michigan and Michigan State weren't all in on them. I mean, they they had not made them priorities at that point. And so, but whenever that happened, you know, there this is why you also have coaches like Cornell Mann to tell you, like, yeah, I think it's time we pivot. I think it's time we shift focus. And, you know, we stay in touch with these guys. We stay in contact. But we understand that, you know, our odds have diminished there. And so then you start going after a kid like Tamar Bates, who, you know, you talk to people, they're in the mix for him. Then they, they expect Missouri to stay in the mix there. So I think the thing we suffer from, and we try to say this a lot, is in the absence of information, it looks like they're missing a lot of guys, but we're not seeing how the board shifts all the time. And so if they aren't on guys as much anymore, but you see them getting cut, it's easy to think they're not landing kids. It's why I tend to hold back judging or like rendering an initial assessment of a class until we get to a signing period, till guys can put pins on paper and you can see who they wound up with. I think mm-hmm. that's the end result there. And you know, if they end up with David Joplin, Tamar Bates, and Anton Brookshire, are you really going to be upset that they didn't land Jade Nakins and James Graham? I, I wouldn't be. I would be thrilled if they landed those two guys. So be disappointed, but I, I think until you see the signing, until you see, you know, LOIs get signed, you know, then start rendering some judgment. So I'm probably conservative, more conservative than others, but I look at this week and nothing that's transpired really surprised me, but I get frustration from fans. Well, but another thing that like, I like to sort of point out is, uh, you know, and, and Graham is sort of a, a good player to, to point out with this, like guys have different tracks of development and, and this is a really, really unusual year. So there isn't, or there hasn't been a live period for scouts to get out and watch a lot of players. So a guy like Graham, you're scouting off high school. Well, yeah. And he went from, again, he went from unranked. Nobody was talking about him to a guy that everybody was talking about in a, a few short months. And he got, he ended up being ranked based upon a lot of high school tape, you know, where scouts sort of looked at him and were like, Hey, like this kid, uh, he fits the bill of, of all these things that we're looking for. He looks like a top 60 kid. We were ranking him, you know, 56th. Uh, so that's a huge jump. But it also doesn't necessarily mean that, like, you know, like like Tamar, Tamar Bates is, like, in some of the rankings, went from, like, 90-something down to, like, 112 or 120. And it's just, like, uh, and then as soon as he gets out and plays... Uh, like I, I retweeted somebody. I can't remember who it was. Evans. Was it Corey Evans? Um, was talking about how Tamar Bates just looked great and and just really matured as a passer and and great poise and all this kind of stuff. Um, and this is a guy who who, and I I don't think it was Rivals rankings because Corey Evans write, writes for Rivals. Two four seven has uh, but it was two two four seven. Yeah, like he dropped in two four seven, and so it's just like. Right now, we're in a period where I really would not pay a lot of attention to where guys are ranked right now because there hasn't been enough time for us to really view um, 
you know, where these guys are in, in a live context against other players of their own caliber. So you don't know if, like, maybe Tamar, Tamar Bates has sort of fallen behind some of the other guys. I kind of doubt it. Uh, to me, like, when I was watching him, uh, the, the you know, the film that we got from, like, his high school season last year, he looked a lot better from a year ago, and he looked like a guy who was tracking towards being a top 75-level player. But there's no way to know that right now. Um, and if there's one area that I think you and I can both agree on is that the scouting from the staff on a lot of their, their guys early has been pretty spot on. You look, you look at like the guys that they offered in, uh, in early spring this year for the, you know, the 21 class. And a lot of those guys have been tracking towards getting other really big high major interest, including somebody like Graham, including Joplin, uh, yeah, like all these guys, even though they're not in inside of a top 150, they're all getting like attention from high-level elite programs. You know, Joplin has gotten interest in a scholarship offer from Texas. Landers has gotten interest in a scholarship offer from Kansas. Um, you know, so the staff is doing a good job scouting and identify the kind of talent. Now we get to a point where it's like, okay, now they need to kind of turn the corner and this is a re- pretty imp- important recruiting class. Uh, I don't necessarily think that you need Malachi Branham, Hunter Salas, and, and guys like that. But again, kind of what you were saying before, if if you find a way in this class to pull in Tamar Bates and David Joplin on top of Anton Brookshire, I think that is a terrific, terrific class. That's, that's like a top 20, top 25 at worst level class. Uh, add in, you know, a, a, a big, whether it's somebody like, you know, Seku Gasama or, or Yaya Keda. Um, and I think you're really rounding out into, uh, you know, the kind of four-man class that I think that they need to uh, put together to sort of, you know, bring some excitement back. Um, and I, I realize that there's a lot of people out there that only get excited for, like, you know, the top 25 level guys. But, but you're talking about, like, three or four guys that, are going to be staples in this program for the next, you know, probably three years. Yeah, And I think you also have to, and we talked about this before we came on. I think you also have to account for what Conzo's recruiting history is. And because I'm a lover of all things spreadsheets, I have plugged in every guy that he has committed and signed going back to Tennessee. And the list of guys is about 35 um, 35 names long, and if you take the you know the mean of those guys recruiting rankings, it's 193rd. If you were to take the median, it's around 165, which means that there's probably some guys at the top at the bottom end of the recruiting rankings that are dragging that down. He's signed, based on my numbers here, seven guys who are ranked lower than 300th in the 247 composite like Conzo's range if in his career at high majors is between Charlie Moore who is number 71 nationally and Javon Pickett who is number 292 so when I look at a Conzo Martin recruit it's a kid who's somewhere in that range probably 70th to 250th nationally and that's who he's going to build his program on. he's going to you know you look at the kids that he's landed you know the number of kids that he brings in He's in his career. He's signed about a third of those are between 150 and 300 in the RPI in the 247 composite. So, I think 
when fans talk about Conzo Martin as a recruiter and him being an elite recruiter, the hope was that he would show up here and his respect in the basketball community in St. Louis would translate to landing top flight talent in St. Louis. That has not happened. I, I think we can all, we can agree on that outside of Jeremiah Tillman, you know, out in 2017, that has not happened. You know, for recruits who are not named, you know, with the surname Porter, but you look at who <laughs> he's landed since he's been here. He landed Torrance Watson. He, you know, lured Mark Smith in on a transfer. He landed Mario McKinney, who that has not panned out. You know, so I think he's landed guys in his range. You know, Javon Pickett falls in that in that range. So I think outside of the Porters and Jeremiah Tillman, he's matched his recruiting profile. Like you, you and I have talked about, he's landed those three and four year players that are in the city of St. Louis. Now the hope was that Conzo would land guys like EJ Liddell, Cam Fletcher, Caleb Love. As we've talked about, there's a host of reasons why that has not happened. But I think if you were to say to fans, Conzo Martin is going to be hired and he's going to go and get, you know, his first couple of years, he's going to get pretty much all the kids that he puts an emphasis on in St. Louis between 75 and 250. He's going to have a shot at him. Missouri fans would be happy with that. Um, and so I think there's a misunderstanding of what Conzo's recruiting profile looks like in the sense that in his career, he's only signed seven top 50 guys out of 35 to 36 guys, 35 to 36 recruits. So one in five is a top 50 kid. So sure, again, be frustrated that Missouri has not landed you know, some priority kids in the last two classes. That, that's fine. I'm not going to tell you not to be frustrated. That, and plus, that was you know the hope that Conzo could translate that here. But he's recruited guys, you know, the first couple of years in the way that matched his profile. And I think once you understand that, you can then apply that to this 2021 class, which are Tamar Bates, a number 85 kid, David Joplin, who's going to be borderline 150, probably in the 247 composite index. Yaya Kate is 145. In rivals rankings, so he's recruiting the types of kids that he's normally landed. Now he has to get them in this class, and he has to bounce back from what was a a, a poor 2020 end. But when I look at the board for 2021, I don't see, wow, this is you know weird. I see this is what a Conzo Martin recruiting board looks like given his prior recruiting history. So I think that's important context to have in mind as well as you kind of evaluate what they're doing. Well, also like you did some exploratory research into, I think a more realistic, uh, idea of where the Missouri basketball program kind of is. Like we've talked about in the past, like, you know, the, the, uh, the negative effect and how, Missouri's hiring of Kim Anderson and Kim Anderson's performance in those three years has adversely affected the program. Um, you know, when you think about kids that are 17 right now, uh, you know, like those three years were, you know, when they were what, 12 to 15, 11 to 14 uh, or 12 to 15. 11, 11 to 14. Yeah. Um, you know, which is, when you're just starting to kind of get interested and notice and, teams and, and notice, yeah, more, more college basketball is going on. Uh, and that's your lasting memory of Missouri is, is at, as a bottom dweller. 
but you went even further back to basically like when all these kids were <laughs> alive. Uh, and how's Missouri's performance in uh, against its SEC peers? Uh, when you go back to 2002 and you look at average wins and average losses, uh, Missouri has averaged 18.3 wins since 2002 and 2003 and 14.3 losses. In the SEC, if you look at that average win total, you know, yes, they were in the Big 12 for part of that stretch, but we're comparing them to the conference they're in now. So if you were to sort them out by that, by those mean wins, they are um, below, yeah, they are below Kentucky, Florida, Tennessee, Texas A&M, Alabama, Mississippi State, Arkansas, LSU, Ole Miss, Vanderbilt, and then they are only ahead of South Carolina, Auburn, and Georgia. So They're 11th. Yep. And they have only had, in that stretch, like if you look at the typical SEC team, the Again, if we're using standard deviations, it's kind of a to set a range. 15 to 25 wins is where most teams land. Missouri's landed in that range 12 times in the last 18 years. They've only had 26 wins two times, and they've lost, and they've only and they've won less than 15 games three times. So, you know, if you were to search for comparable programs over that stretch, it's Arkansas and Vanderbilt are kind of similar to them. So. That's so Missouri's probably anywhere between like depending on what metric you use, eighth and eleventh in the conference in terms of performance, just using those crude measures since two thousand and two. Or compared to SEC teams that they're in the conference with now. Eight probably eighth to eleventh. Which is really kind of a little bit jarring when you think about Missouri kind of moving into the SEC. Now, granted they were coming off one of the better stretches. Uh, and really, like their their best stretch of uh, of, of basketball since Probably the late '80s, early '90s, I would imagine. Yeah, when you sort of take into account, like you know, Mike Anderson's lead eight run uh, into two additional NCAA tournaments, uh, and then Frank Hayes, you know, first year where they won 30 games. So that's that was a four year stretch where you know Missouri was. Uh, at worst, like what a, t- a ten seed? Yeah, I think was what what they were like one of those years. Yeah, but again, the um, kids they're recruiting now were nine or ten years old. So right. So that that stretch, um, yeah, uh, I think maybe obscures a little bit of you know the overarching <laughs> uh, negativity that's kind of been around the Missouri basketball program. Um, you know, really since the, the, the mid nineties, I think 90, 94, 95, uh, and then what was it? 95, 96 was the year that they lost to UCLA. 94, 95 was when they lost to UCLA. If you go back to 19, 94, 95 UCLA, since okay. 1989, 1990, they've won about nine, they've averaged around 19 wins a season. So, and around 13 losses. So realistically, like since they were ranked number one in the country and, you know, arguably a a bona fide national contender, probably in the late eighties, they've had good stretches every five to six years. And their most consistent stretch was probably the back end of Mike Anderson's tenure into the first two years of Frank eighth. So that's, but realistically you're looking at a program that for the last three years has been an 18 to 19 game winner. Every five to six years, they pop off a really good run. And, you know, Mike Anderson probably got them to their apex and probably their most consistent stretch about a decade ago. So that's probably the best way to think of them. 
So then, at this point... Kim comes along and runs the car into the ditch. Yeah. I mean, like, like if they hire somebody else, um, you know, and, and the the product is kind of similar to, like, those previous... Um, 25 years or so. Yeah, you know, 25 years, where it's it's good, but it, not great. Um, then I think, you, like, you're still probably in a position where you could make a you know, like a strong, um, you know, financial play to really kind of get somebody in that could, uh, you know, take this program to another step. But at this point, um, I mean, I, they've, they've paid Conzo really well. And I don't think that the product has been as good, uh, even, you know, understanding, like, I think we're, I tend to be a little bit more of an apologist on, in the ways that I, I think that you have to be able to take into account the injuries and the, and and the impact that that's had. But I don't. I also think it's entirely fair to say at this point, like it hasn't gone the way anybody wanted it. Yeah. Um, and especially when you consider like the amount of money that you're 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 paying comes Martin. And now we're at a point where um, they really kind of need a big year this year. Um, because everybody's graduating, <laughs> and and I don't think you can expect even even like a the the optimal class of what we want kind of coming in next year to to turn around and, and continue that momentum. You're looking at a little bit of a rebuild year. You're hoping that you know with with you know Kansas reputation, it's not going to crater and be like a nine and and you know twenty loss or nine win twenty loss season uh, like you had under Kim, but you know, even if it's like 15, 16 wins, you're hoping then that you can rebound uh, the following year uh, with another, you know, good recruiting class. So, I don't know. At this point, like, I, I feel like this has been a dire, you know, sad, souring part of the podcast. Do we need to... No, I just think it's... I, I, I think the one thing you, you look at, Cocktail hour uh, to start everything, and then a sobering hour to finish it up. Yeah, I, everyone has heard from us and from other sources. Kind of the same general unfolding autopsy here, which was they didn't get what they thought they were going to get out of their biggest three signees, which were Michael Porter, John T. Porter, and Jeremiah Tillman. I, I've looked at this. I literally went and and crunched this up. They had when I looked at it. They had, from Michael Porter Jr., Jonte Porter, I think they probably came in close to potential 120 games they could play. You know, they missed probably two-thirds of those. Like, that's the guys who were supposed to jumpstart this program, and as we've said, you know, ad infinitum, that were supposed to paper over the worst parts of the rebuild, that didn't happen. It just didn't happen for them. And they kind of you know, gritted their teeth and got to the NCAA tournament in year one. But once Jonte Porter went down, this thing became a hard reset. And then you were going to get into a question, I think, less of recruiting. Because once you were going to have to go into more of a traditional rebuild, you were going to have to do player development and put together a core of talent that you could then go, that could show on the floor that, Maybe it wasn't going to win 20-plus games or 22-plus games a year, but it was going to be competitive enough over the next the last two seasons to at least let you go to out to recruit and say, look, we've got 
five or six guys that are going to be good veteran players. They're solid. They've got roles. They're bought into our culture. Come in and be that final you know, piece for us. And as we've talked about in other episodes and a lot over this last 30 episodes, you know, that just hasn't happened. Xavier Pinson, as we just mentioned at the start of the pod, was inconsistent for the first 50 games of his career. Javon Pickett gives you just about everything you could want in a box score except consistent scoring. You know, he's just not going to be, a, you know, a prime cog offensively. Torrance Watson, outside of a 10-game stretch at the end of his freshman year, has not been the player many people expected. You know, Jeremiah Tillman, a guy who shows flashes, but again, through foul trouble and now, you know, foot injury, a foot injury has not been able to stay on the floor. Like, they just, once you lost the Porters as that kind of catalyst, catalyzing agent, you needed, you know, good old player development and roster maturity to do the work for you. And that just hasn't happened for them. And I think that that is something that, you know, you can attribute more to players and to the staff than you can, you know, freak injuries or anything else. So I think that's just where my head goes here, whereas I get why fans get upset about recruitment and why they're missing on guys and you know maybe why they're not getting optimal top-end talent. But I think you have to look at, you know, what they're going to be able to sell guys and, the last two years, they've had to try and sell, come be part of a traditional rebuild where our core is a little inconsistent. That's that's just not, you can be a great person, you can you know, be an upstanding person, just like it seems like everyone on this staff is, and be someone that families love, but if the choice is between an inconsistent situation at Missouri and you know Kentucky or North Carolina or Ohio State, it's just hard. It's hard to win those battles. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, Konzo is also a guy who typically works in that 75 to 250 range. And so they've, the guys that they've needed to, you know, have developed from that part of the recruiting rankings, it, it's been scattershot for them so far. And it's made getting those top 50 guys a little bit harder. So that's, that's where I think you have to really kind of take a sober look at the program is, it's to me. I, I I focus less on recruiting than I do on sort of how they're developing the guys they've brought in, and it's and this year is going to I think be year four. It's there's enough body of evidence now that I think that that's something that I that I will probably care a little bit more about than you know who they land in a, a reset class this fall. So what are we uh, what are we looking at like over the next? we'll say like four to six weeks as far as recruitment goes. I'm looking at when guys cut their list down. Um, you know, given what state high school associations are doing, do we think that there's going to be a chance for open gyms if we don't have kids going back to school? Like if you can't, if right. you can't get into open gyms to go watch guys, um, if we've got, you know, th- there have been some independent recruiting events that have been going on and that have been, you know, coaches have been able to stream online, but that's not the same as getting into the gym, sitting courtside. And it's also if the dead period gets extended, which there are whispers that it's looking like it's going to get extended again, you can't get guys on campus. So to me, the real question now is just when do the guys that they're targeting decide you know, I can't wait any longer. I've got to, you know, I can't keep, you know, going two months waiting for the dead period to end, or I can't keep waiting for a staff to get out and staffs to be able to get out and see me or got, or, you know, coaches to pass through open gyms. 
So I think that's really what the next four or six weeks look like here is, you know, and will the NCAA keep, you know, or will the LOI date stay the same or would they back that up just because kids haven't had the opportunity quite yet? So I'm, you know, it sounds lame, but I'm sort of interested on when guys decide that, okay, I'm just up against it and I've got to go with the pool of suitors I have and I've got to cut things down. And then how do they, you know, go about making that final decision when they can't take official visits? So it's, it's going to be interesting to watch how those processes unfold going into the, going into autumn. Yeah. It's going to be a really weird fall. (laughs) I think when you look at, you know, we've kind of focused a lot on like somebody like Tamar Bates. I think, you're kind of hoping at this point that the relationship that you've established with somebody like him, uh, you know, you've been around now for a couple of years with Bates, uh, that that's kind of enough to do the job that you don't necessarily need, you know, to do the whole official visit. And, and uh, you know, I know that one of the things that Missouri's traditionally done with official visits is bring guys in for football games. Now, football games aren't going to have any, like, fans there, so it's just like, you know, that's less of an exciting atmosphere for, uh, you know, bring kids in. Missouri's typically avoided bringing kids in during the season for visits because, you know, the atmosphere at Mizzou Arena, if you're not playing an elite opponent, kind of sucks. Um, you know, so the, they're in a tight spot. It's 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 a difficult uh, difficult place to to sort of be in and, and you really need to kind of just get something to kind of go your way. So maybe, maybe this is the fall that it goes their way, Matt. Maybe, maybe Bates and Joplin are, are going to be the guys to sort of turn the tide and get things going on a positive note for the Missouri Tigers. We'll see. I'm, I, I you know, I, there's my light at the end of the end of the tunnel for everybody. Yeah. Is, that's what that's man, why you're here i'm i'm still i'm still hopeful like I, I i am like i still think like watching Conzo martin coach still think he's a really good basketball coach uh at at some point the roster needs to get better so and and be healthy so maybe maybe this is what we're all waiting for just a giant 2020 pandemic to ruin everything and then missouri basketball is going to turn it all around maybe maybe it <laughs> it took a horrific global scale event to turn Missouri's luck. It's just, yeah, that that that's a statement of anything else there. But uh, but no, I I guess the one thing I would say is, I get, I mentioned Twitter a couple times, and I mentioned folks, and if I seem flippant or if I seem like I'm, you know, peddling you know Kool Aid. I'm really not. I mean, I understand that people are frustrated, and I think that it's born out of wanting to see this program, I, you know, get back to the median level, which I think is just, you know, after you go through something like the Anderson tenure, if you can just be competitive, if you can just be a team that's between, you know, sixth and eighth and getting into the tournament and just, you know, starting to put together, you know, some solid run of play, then I think people will feel fine, you know, I, I, but it seems like since, you know, Jonte Porter went down that there's not really been, you know, a a real string of good luck for this program. And that, that's a long time to sort of see things go against you after, 
you know, just three years of an abject failure and a hire. So I get it. I get the frustration and I get that people want to see things turn out, but, you know, I don't think, you know, Jaden Aikens, you know, cutting Missouri from the list is a reason to just, you know, become apoplectic or just become exceedingly dire. You know, if they don't land Tamar Bates, if they don't land David Joplin, if they don't land Yaya Keita, then yeah, I mean, at that point, start asking a lot of hard questions. But until we get to that point, just I'll plead a little bit more patience on that front. So that's my optimistic take, just pleading for a little bit of patience. And I don't know, like, I tend to care more about who's on campus, you know, each and every year. So if they miss all those guys, but in the spring they have a... Uh, they kill uh, it in the transfer market. Then. I mean, yeah, like you you end up with a roster that you're happy with. Like that's all that matters, you know. Recruiting graphics and and you know commitment ceremonies, none of that stuff actually matters. What matters is what the product that you put on the floor and how many how many games do you win. And uh, Missouri needs to win more games, one way or the yep. other. And so, like I said earlier, that's why I sort of tend to put an eye more on like is Torrance Watson going to be able to flesh out a role outside of knocking down jumpers? Will Mark Smith be healthy? Will you know? Will Xavier Pinson get better as an off-ball defender? Like those things are not like necessarily fun or like great conversation to have with your friends. But those are the things that I think are going to make the difference for him. And those are the things that you know Conzo's in a position to control. You know, once he gets these guys back on the floor together, he's in a position to, and those guys are in a position to change those things. It's not hypothetical. It's not you have to wait on those guys you know, through their high school season to get here to bring help. Those, the, the solutions to this team's issues are, are something that they can directly address right now. It's just going to be a question of do they. And so um, that's, that's what I'm eager to see. With that said, uh, that's a wrap on season three. Um, we appreciate everybody that listens. If you listen through your web browser, there's a uh, link that you can follow that will subscribe you to this podcast and it will go right to your phone. Um, Matt, here's something interesting. I was looking at the analytics because, you know, uh, I'm an analytics guy, but we are seeing an increase in the number of people that are listening through a web browser. Uh, I think that that is because more people are working from home. And so they're listening while they're at home instead of where I think most people were probably listening to in their car before. Uh, And so however you are listening, we appreciate uh, your listens. Um, We will be back in two weeks, the start of season four. Uh, Episode one will be the the, the trick for uh, a couple weeks. Um, If you have any questions, anything like that, just go ahead and tweet at me or Matt. Uh, all complaints go to Mitch. Um, anything else that I need to hit on before we get no, out of here? I think you touched on all the closing notes. I think that's good. So thank you, uh, everybody, for making Season 3 uh, memorable for me, for Matt. Uh, we'll see you in two weeks. Bye.